Hey there, I'm your host, Kanjun, and we are Generally Intelligent, an independent research lab developing AI agents that mirror the fundamentals of human-like intelligence and that can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. On our podcast, we interview researchers about their behind-the-scenes ideas, opinions, and intuitions that are hard to share in papers and talks. We hope you learn as much as we have in our quest to understand and build the mind. Sarah is one of the co-founders of Latent Space, which is a startup that is building a deep learning rendered 3D engine in order to democratize creativity. Sarah's recent paper at NERPS 2020 is called Low Distortion Block Resampling with Spatially Stochastic Networks. This is a method that allows you to realistically regenerate part of an image, which is actually really cool. For example, maybe you've generated a capsule, but you'd like to change the style of a tower. So with their new network architecture and training procedure and resampling algorithm, you would be able to resample that tower until you get something that you like. In their paper, they have examples where they resample building architecture, they change someone's hair, they add glasses to photos of faces. It's really cool. The results are really incredibly realistic, and I encourage you to check it out. Sarah has had a really unique path into research. She was the head of product at an NLP startup called Sonar, and she was a software engineer and product manager before that. She's incredibly brilliant, so her work in deep learning and VR led her to receiving an Oculus Launchpad scholarship and also an XR Studio Fellowship at Mozilla. Welcome, Sarah. We're really happy to have you here today. Just to get started, we're curious about how did you initially get into research? Yeah, for sure. Also, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this stuff. I think long story short is that it actually started all the way back in undergrad. And I was really fortunate enough to have gone to the University of Toronto taking classes by Jeff Hinton, where he was teaching neural nets really early on. This is back in 2012, 2013. I didn't realize it at the time, but what initially got me interested is I felt like software was eating the world and I felt like AI was an extension of that. It seemed like there was going to be some sort of intelligent AI that was going to happen. And I wanted to understand that. I felt like it was uncovering a piece of the universe. So to me, that's where it really started to begin and just how simple that prop was and cross entropy, how well that worked. I had a bit of a pause between graduating and then going back into research. I really wanted to learn software engineering and then I got into product management. I was a head of product at the startup at the time. We were focused on conversational AI. That's when I started getting back into NLP and that's what sparked this knowledge again, like curiosity. And so that's where I began to go deep into research and started reading papers and implementing things. You mentioned taking classes under Jeff Hinton, which is quite interesting, back in 2012, 2013. What was it like back then? What were the assumptions that you and he had? Have they panned out? I remember my first class, Jeff Hinton was basically making the claim which I still believe is true, is that, for instance, it's basically impossible to write these types of programs, right? You literally have to describe, you have a task like classify all these dog types, classify all these numbers. His first example was actually on MNIST and classifying numbers and how difficult that was. It's really quite hard to explicitly write every line of the program and how exactly, like all these rules. And that this approach, like neural networks, some sort of learning approach, was basically the solution for that. So I've always thought about it as neural networks is a way to find the correct program within the space of programs of how to solve things. And that things like transformers are probably just an example of something larger that is more general purpose, but 
This type of learning technique is quite simple, yet works really well. Mm -hmm. On a side note, I wasn't really exposed to the anti-neural network philosophy. And I think that's more of a a bias based on the types of professors you have. I learned that later on in life, which is that like, oh, a lot of the things you think are true are actually heavily biased in the opinions of their teachers. And so to me, I didn't realize how neural networks were quite taboo. To me, I just thought they were the default. (laughs) Fascinating. Yeah. And I think they had one image net, which he mentioned kind of like nonchalantly, like, oh, okay, sure. But I didn't realize it was a big deal until many years later. And I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) That's super interesting. What was one of your biggest mistakes as a researcher? I think the thing that I got wrong really early on is figure out how exactly to read papers. It's not how you would normally think about reading papers. It's actually like how to not really read the paper unless you really have to. (laughs) Step one is probably you read the title, you read the abstract, you probably look at the first figure and you don't have a completionist mindset and you don't read the whole thing. I used to try to read the full thing in so much depth. I would stop at every sentence or every section and look other things up and go into this deep hole Mm -hmm. of reading. It's really important to not go deep on the paper initially. So don't really read it. (laughs) After that, I think it's effectively to see if there's other resources about it. And the important thing about this is that, especially early on, like understanding the signal from the noise. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot of noise in machine learning research. And it's really important to see where the dust settles. I think it's really important to use other resources, whether it be blog posts or repos, any sort of talk that the authors have given that's online, going into those first before going into the paper. And so for me, being able to implement the idea myself really quickly, like an MVP, or if there was an open source repo, running it myself, observing the training dynamics and what was happening. I think that was really important. I learn a lot better when I'm able to do the thing rather than read the thing. It's very much that first approach. And so I think through doing that, then you basically circle back to the paper and have this back and forth process. And then eventually you go through the entire paper, but now it's really rare for me to go through the entire paper on the first pass. And so when I read a paper, it's actually, I don't fully consider myself having read a paper until much after, whereas before it would be within the hour <laughs> type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the second thing that I learned is from a research perspective, it's a little bit more in the software engineering side, which is setting up your benchmarks and tests, <laughs> properly setting up experiment design, ensuring what exactly your benchmark is, what exactly are you comparing to, and then only moving one thing at a time mm-hmm. and actually verify what exactly caused this effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is more a philosophy, but I think it's really important, which is, it's more psychological actually, which is basically whenever you are doing research, you want to see this idea be true because you believe in it so much. That's why you're pushing forward on it. And I think the whole research process, you have to be your biggest skeptic because Every hint of sign of life, you're like, oh, it works. Mm-hmm. And if you like, 
but you should really be skeptical and try to evaluate things in every possible way to to really verify that. That was a hard thing to get into the mentality of because it's so easy to see things and be like, awesome, it worked. Mm -hmm. And then check on things later and be like, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Why was reading too many papers versus really implementing the code yourself bad? What made you realize, oh, I'm spending too much time just reading papers and understanding the concepts and I'm not enough in the weeds? A lot of ML research is still quite empirical. Justifying the correct learning rate optimizer is still very difficult (laughs) or various types of optimizers and things like that. And so for me, it still boils down to empirically what you can or can't verify. And so the math can check out, but if it doesn't work, then you have an issue. (laughs) (laughs) Or more so rather, if you can choose something to work, then you can dive deeper into understanding why or why not. Perhaps that's a little more controversial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, we were both uh, talking about a paper a few weeks ago and you were just like, oh, let's just pull up the notebook and like work through the notebook. Like rather than even reading it, I think your instinct is to go straight to the like working code, which I actually found to be a, a really good way of actually understanding what was happening. So mm. like, yeah. Oh, yeah. This was the um, cellular automaton stuff. That's right. Yeah. Like this is a, this is just like another example on the list. Like if there's some resource, like in this case, it's amazing that there was a collab notebook from the author, which was great. The code doesn't lie, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And to me, it's just, it's a lot more fun being able to interact with things. Mm -hmm. As if you change certain parameters or quickly just add a different type of loss or change the architecture in some way, you get like a faster feedback than say reading five different papers and then realize, hmm, what if we combine this bit and this other bit? So I don't think there's a balance though. It's just, it's more of a like ordering mm-hmm. of things. Are there any tips or hacks or tricks that you've developed over the years that you feel have really improved your effectiveness as a researcher? So I think there are a few major areas where I feel that I've learned a lot of tips as a researcher. I think the first one is more on a individual level, which is keeping track of notes and papers and things like that. And so for me, um, using Miro, which is this collaborative whiteboarding uh, software, has been really useful. I'm a lot more of a visual person, and so I like to take screenshots of various talks, snippets of papers, um, sometimes even code snippets, and put them on this virtual whiteboard, essentially, so that I can collectively group things and see how ideas connect to other ideas. I think that's more on an individual level, which I find really helpful. The other area is I used to use TensorBoard a lot for experiments, but then we started using weights and biases. And I think that was actually a really big change. And it was very simple. The TensorBoard, you have to host it yourself. And with weights and biases, you effectively have a automatically served tensor board. But it was actually even better than that, which is that I was able to do custom visualizations and organize things in certain ways that were really useful for me. Like I didn't feel held back Mm. by the tooling. I felt like the tooling was helping me move forward. It's really helped with this notion of reproducibility. It's really useful to be able to trust a tool like this because I log literally everything, like (laughs) all the configs, log every single metric possible, log all the types of visualizations. 
I do a lot of visualizations and metrics during training as opposed to after. People are usually only looking at charts, but at least here at Latent Space, we look at both qualitative and quantitative types of metrics, which is really important. And having weights and biases, really supporting our types of workflow has been really useful for that. And in particular, we are actually working quite collaboratively with them on their reports feature. And that was actually at the same time we were writing this paper. They're basically saying like, you know, reports are awesome. Like this report is the draft of our paper, essentially. It's like the one thing we're going to look at. We want it to be collaborative. Before they were not collaborative, the reports were just a very simple kind of dashboard. But I think that really changed it for us to be able to do collaborative research. That was a really big hack from a researcher perspective because now we were able to share results very concisely. And so as opposed to speaking your result, you can literally go through your result. Everyone can see and verify mm. and also reproduce exactly what you did and build upon that. I thought that was a huge game-changing uh, experience for us. Interesting. Team. Mm. Yeah. We should adopt that. Yeah. Actually, I think it would be great to give people a slight overview of your paper, Stochastic Spatial Networks for Low Block Distortion. It is going to be at NARIPS 2020, so in two days. Yes. And, and it is a very interesting, compelling paper with a lot of really cool demos. So tell us a little bit about the paper. So the whole point of our paper is that we have a generative model. And typically generative models, you have a particular leading code that then is able to generate the entire image. And in particular for us, because we're building a neural rendered engine, having the whole scene just be one leading code doesn't necessarily make sense. And I think having that type of practicality really helped our research in the sense of, if you think about the world in terms of go blocks, there are certain chunks of the world. And being able to associate a leading code with each chunk of the world, that really enables people to adjust certain areas of the image without having to regenerate the full image or apply other methods that require human supervision, such as having labeled segmentation maps to dictate on a pixel level exactly what to edit or what to generate and things like that. And it's a little different. We contrast it with in-painting because in-painting is actually um, pretty interesting. And, and the difference is that we still want to generate images that are on the manifold of possible realistic images or imaginary images that to us as humans feel plausible as to what we want. So it's not going to be rigid to this underlying grid, whereas in painting, it can only change within the bounds of where you specified. We have some examples in the paper here where if you're adding glasses or changing the hair for Elfland churches, if you're, for instance, changing the towers, there are certain other things that might change in order to make the image still look plausible, but it isn't within a reasonable radius of where the change is in the image. Earlier, you mentioning that the idea is simple. And so I'd love to hear the simple description of how the thing works. So the simple version is if you have an image and you change a particular part of it, you want that part to change and things far away from it not to change. With the particular uh, loss or regularization that you guys have, how does that thing work? I get the feeling that the algorithm itself is not actually that complicated. It seems like from the paper that the whole image is allowed to change. So how did you actually restrict it? The initial thing, it was a research thing that I learned, which is do the simplest, dumbest thing. And if it works, then that means you're onto something. And then you can refine from there. 
Can you say a little more about the complicated version or, or a simple version we had at first? Martin Ardrowski, which is one of our collaborators on the paper, what I really admire about him is his ability to simplify. And when you think he's simplified, there's more to simplify. <laughs> he's really ruthless about that. And I learned a lot from that process. And so, for instance, our initial regularization was literally just a binary mask where it's literally just like a square for the particular latent code that was changed and everything else. And we compute just the absolute difference. Uh, if anything changed in the area where it shouldn't change versus only changed within the square area that we changed within the latent uh, block, it was really simple. And there's so much you can improve upon that. It worked better than we thought because you would think that having a loss like that you would have grid artifacts because you're literally just doing an absolute difference between this square mask, mm -hmm. which doesn't really make sense, but it worked. And I think that's an interesting research learning, which is that start with something that's really simple and to you may seem really dumb, but it's the complexity that kind of kills you. And so having that checkpoint was really important. And that's when we were like, okay, we should probably write a paper about this. I think we updated the paper basically to a different loss, which is something that makes little more sense, which is a radial fall off. And so you want to penalize changes that happen further away more than things that occur closer to the area of change. And so I think that's what made potentially it harder to read in the paper because all the math became more difficult once you add a radial follow-up compared to a very simple, if this block is not the one that changed, then it's penalized. <laughs> but the idea is really simple. And so you start from that and then you realize, like, okay, we're also operating in pixel space. We can improve on that and move things into a more perceptual type of loss. Um, but we didn't get to do that. I think that's where earth move resistance is a potential improvement there. So I think there's a lot to build up from this. But I think that the core of it is quite simple, which is that things that are farther away from when you change should just be penalized more than things closer to you. When you were writing this paper, what are some of the things that you tried and expected to work, but they didn't work? I feel like everything we tried worked. <laughs> wow. That's a great, that's a great, that's what? a weird answer. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Wow. <laughs> Tell us about the process there. What were you expecting? And then the, what were the things you tried and then that they all worked? We tried the dumbest thing and it worked, which was the absolute difference between, yeah. between the areas that should be the same versus the areas that should not be the same. And then I think everything after that was just an improvement in terms of the ideas. So I think we started with a floor that was already, we thought was not good, but the fact that it worked, it made everything else easier. If something's too complicated, I'll get rid of it. At least in the paper, you mentioned you spent a total of $2,000 on the compute because you were using, you know, only the pre-trained style again too, I think, right? As the network that you were building off of. How did you guys decide to do that? And had that kind of method continued to be fruitful going forward? And what was that experience like? We're a startup that also does research. So we had funding, but it's not to the extent where we can just blindly scale things up. And so I think that was actually a thing that came out of like the constraints of our situation. And so we had to be resourceful and creative. I think the thing that I learned a lot from this process is that transfer learning is 
really good, especially for iteration time, because you get feedback so much faster than if you were to say train for days or weeks and things like that. So you can iterate on ideas on a time frame that is 10 or 100 times faster than otherwise. I have talked to some people at other labs. They run an experiment on their labs like shared cluster and fight for time. Seven days later or like a month later, they get results and they're like, it's pretty painful if you have a bug and all mm-hmm. XYZ types of problems. So I think there's two points. One is that transfer learning is really good for fast iteration time, which I think is really crucial for research. I think the second thing is that there's the critique that your idea just might not work because of using transferred weights. I think that can be true some of the times, but I also feel that if your idea is robust enough, it should work with transfer learning. I'm sure there are cases where it would be ideal not to, and so you basically train a new base and then iterate on your experiments from that shared base. But for us, like it just made sense to use the star again two weights in this use case. I'm sure people prior to this paper's results would say like, oh, but Stalgan is on one lighting code and you're now changing the representation by having multiple lighting codes. That doesn't make sense to do. It definitely works. <laughs> and if you were to train from scratch, I'm sure it would work too, which mm-hmm. we have done, but it's just expensive to do. I think it's something to definitely consider if you're running into certain issues, but mm-hmm. it's not the first thing I would go to. When you think about image classification or all of NLP, everything is focused on transfer learning and fine tuning. So you don't really see that much from the generative, like image generative modeling in particular, but I don't see why not. And so for us, like what we did in the paper, that's what we do internally as well. Back to the latents. One thing I was wondering was, how were you actually able to change the latents in a way that fit with the rest of the image and made sense? changing the latents, we call this the resampling process. And so it's rolling the dice. It, it looks at the surrounding latent codes and it says like, oh, I'm near the top, so I should probably most likely generate something like a tower here versus I'm touching the ground, so I most likely should generate a wall or a door, a gate mm-hmm. or something here. That's the idea there. Another part that's actually interesting with this is that thinking about the latent resolution in relation to semantic features is interesting. If you think about a typical Gantt, the latent resolution is just one by one. So it covers the full image. And there's a spectrum between that and all the way down to the literal pixel as the latent resolution. And you wanna basically choose the latent resolution that is coarse enough, two by two or four by four, but that covers a good chunk of semantic information. So if you think about like a face, you'd probably want to think of things in four by four latent resolutions, as opposed to, let's say, just to be extreme, like for the thought experiment, like 128 by 128 latent resolution, because then you're not really capturing anything within the latent code. It's way too much on the pixel of like low level features. You want it to be a little bit higher. So I think that's actually an important parameter to think about. How did you get from, you know, you were working on this startup in NLP. How did you get from NLP to here? Yeah, for me, it was always about understanding. And in terms of vision, I think what we're working on at Latent Space, basically neural rendering, a really big component of that is actually semantic understanding. Language is a really useful tool that we've developed as a species. I think there's some combination of vision and NLP 
which is a good combination for this type of neural rendering work that we're focused on now. Are there any hunches or theses that led you to the work you're doing now? I think the thing that has changed for me is that I don't think everything can be stored in the weights of a model. In close partnership with that idea is also having a model that is extremely large hosted on a server. Before, I think we were thinking about things more so on device mm. so, and having it be able to generate these things. Now we've shifted our mindset more towards a large server-based model. It's a change in the dichotomy there. The first thing you mentioned was that you no longer believe that all the information can be stored in the weights. What led you to the shift toward believing that? Yeah, I think in the limit, things can. Just from a practical point of view, we definitely want to continue to be scaling the model up. However, if you combine this with basically retrieval augmented techniques, you can achieve similar performance on a smaller model, which means that you have more gains to continue scaling up. Combining both, uh, I think is going to be really powerful. How this ties back into what we're working on here at Latent Space is that one way is to think of it as we have some sort of oracle. And if you were to describe a particular scene, having it be able to actually generate a scene that matches closer to what you are thinking about is it's a really difficult task. And so we actually have a funny example of Wolverine as our canonical use case. Because we have Wolverine the animal, but you also have Wolverine the actual X-Men character. And Wolverine the X-Men character also has multiple ways that he can be generated, so to speak, basically visualized. So there's the comic book version. There's people sketching him, him as a toy. Kim as Hugh Jackman. <laughs> so there's a lot of variety in how exactly you visualize Wolverine. And when I say visualize, you can think of it as like the model generating it. But we understand that this is Wolverine, the person in X-Men universe. And so from a pixel level, like they're very different, but from mm -hmm. a semantic understanding level, they're, the same. they're, they're all very close together. So for us, that's really important from the you know, neural rendering perspective, like being able to understand that. That was a really good example. One thing you mentioned is that you have had things that didn't work out in the past. Like, what can we say about some of the unpublished research failures that you have experienced? Yeah, something that we tried early on was a like two-step training process. It's not necessarily new. There's a lot of research on this at least five years ago. Having a autoencoder as the first step and then in the second step, learning the representation of the bottleneck. But we were just not able to get that to work. And then BQVAE came out, and then Jukebox. So it definitely does work, but I think we just didn't push on it as much. And I don't have much to say on why it doesn't work, why we failed. All I can say is that we weren't able to get it to work. But intuitively, it made a lot of sense. It's a lot easier to learn from a more compressed representation then so directly from pixels. So still an open question then. It's definitely got to be a bug. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be a multiple bugs, actually. Mm -hmm. We have a similar setup like that now, and that works. <laughs> so interesting. One other question. I was wondering if you have any unusual opinions that 
people you've encountered don't seem to agree with? What are some of your controversial machine learning opinions? Honestly, it depends on the lab, but I think most people are not thinking about scale. And to me, it doesn't feel controversial, but when I talk to people, that's when it starts to feel controversial. I think the scaling laws paper, for instance, should be a way bigger deal, but it just hasn't really resonated that way. Maybe it'll change. I'm not sure, but it just hasn't been getting the type of attention that I thought it would be getting. It seems like getting state-of-the-art on some benchmark doesn't necessarily matter anymore. What matters is how well your model scales effectively. That should be the metric now of how we evaluate um, new techniques, architectures, and things like that. To counter that, obviously, it's not everyone can do this, and so maybe that's why it's not gaining as much, but I actually think it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> For me, scale would be the uh, controversial thing here. Interesting. Mm, and like really yeah. making it a first-class thing to consider, like, does this scale? Yeah. I think that also probably goes back into your, you know, bias towards simplicity as well. And then like things that are complicated are not going to scale. Like if you have these 17 different networks with all these crazy hyperparameters and special hacks that do something like it's just not going to. Exactly. Like for instance, based on the parallel, like LSTMs could achieve the same performance as transformers. It's just they're a constant factor worse. And so it costs you a lot more in order to get an LSTM version of, let's say, GPT-3. Like, it's possible. It's just not the winning version here. And maybe there's something that's going to be better than transformers, and we transformers are the answer. And it's not just that they just scale way better. And I think they're a lot simpler. So Transformers are simpler than LSTMs? That's awesome, yeah. That's interesting. I feel like that might be almost the more controversial opinion. Really? <laughs> I think people use transformers over LSTMs. Well, I think people definitely use them over them. I'm just saying, if you were to write it out, I think there's probably a lot more code that goes into typing out the yeah. transformer and then typing out the LSTM, right? Kelvin was mentioning, actually, that there was a paper recently showing that you can take a multi-level transformer. It's got a few forward layers and it's got the attention layers. And then you just shuffle all the layers, try all the different combinations. Like, what if we had all the attention layers and then all the feed forward layers? And it turns out like some weird combination that's not just like stacking them works much better. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, all attention layers yeah. first and then feed forward layer, layers, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. the winning combination. We'll have to go look up that paper. Though. But it, all, it kind of goes to what you're saying, though, in that it's really about finding things that are simple, like the self-attention is a really simple mechanism. And like, mm-hmm. just like finding these simple scalable mechanisms are actually the, the really important thing. Are there any other controversial opinions like that that you have? From the neural rendering perspective, there's just so much information within a given picture. And the picture is a thousand words. And more recently, there's the paper where a picture is 16 by 16 words. <laughs> I think you can think about it from the other direction, which is a picture is like millions of words. So like very, very large amount because our world is just incredibly dense. If you just imagine a scene of, let's say like San Francisco here, just like the city's like skyline, there's all these different towers, there's buildings, there's the types of trees that are here, birds, the people that live in all these types of units. It's like the Victorian house. You can go all the way down to the granularity of like blue bottle coffee <laughs> or even further down. How far do you want to take it? All the words associated with that. There's just like, there's so many. And so I don't think it's necessarily just a thousand words or 16 by 16. 
But if you think about it from that perspective, every image is really quite dense in information, even if it's not fully visible. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to utilize all the information from humanity, which is effectively the internet. And that's, that's how we connect this to how we're actually rendering things. Moving a little bit toward the end, are there any areas that you're really excited to see develop over the next few years? Definitely the scaling law stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More people diving into that. We were doing something really similar about a year, a year and a half ago. We weren't thinking about it from the perspective of AGI at the time, but it's more from the constraints of our compute budget. <laughs> and so being able to draw in smaller versions of our model and plot the curve and then slowly scale up and does it follow the same curve um, before we run the full fledged out thing. So I do think it could be applicable on a more tenable compute budget. I would love to see more papers and ideas trend in that direction, mm -hmm. showing the power law curve there. It's a big ass though. We'll see. <laughs> I think it's really cool as a default. Josh said a first class concept to keep in mind mm -hmm. your research. Are there any areas that you're interested in having outside collaborators? I think the whole area of visually grounded language, I'd love to work with more people in that area. I think we like to think of what we're building is like merging both the improvements in NLP and image um, generation. I think there was a paper called Bokenization. And I think the idea of it is closer to what we're thinking about, which is they have this whole thing called visual token. So a Boken, that's similar to how we are thinking about our latent blocks in this like world as these tokens. And so that whole area is really interesting to me. And I think the second area is definitely the retrieval work I was mentioning. And so basically scaling retrieval up with these types of models, I think is non-trivial. And in our use case, we're really focused on image generation. And so thinking about things like image retrieval right now is really focused on pixel level. And we want to be able to think about things from more being idea, semantic level, so closer to words. Going back to the Wolverine example, in terms of image retrieval, we don't fully want things to just be on the pixel level. So if it was a comic book rendering of Wolverine, we don't want to pull necessarily other comic book images. We want to be able to pull images in other media as well in terms of what exactly is Wolverine, because there's a lot there. We may want some things that are on pixel level, but I don't think that's necessarily the core thing we're focused on right now. So thinking about retrieval from an image generation perspective is really interesting. Thanks so much, Sarah. This is really interesting and fun. And I feel like I learned a ton about both how to be a researcher and also about how to do a better job generating images. <laughs> and I'm really excited about your neural rendering work and we hope to see more work from you over the next few years. Yes, definitely. Thank you for having me. It's fun to talk about. Thanks for listening to the Generally Intelligent Podcast. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Kanjun, K-A-N-J-U-N, and our lab is at Gen Intelligent. Until next time, 